This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, do you want to start a revolution? Always, yeah. Uh, what are we revolting against? I think that the disparity between space billionaires and space poor is out of control. And I think that it takes a space solution to fix a space problem. So I'm hoping that you can start a space revolution with me to fight off these space billionaires. You saw the penis rocket outside of our ship window here just the other day. We just asked Bezos to borrow his dick. Problem solved. That makes us so that we can never use Amazon again. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today we're going to be watching the film Duck You Sucker. Sergio Leone, the master of adventure, who brought you a fistful of dollars for a few dollars more. And the good, the bad, and the ugly now brings Rod Steiger and James Coburn together to blow you apart. Of course, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, you know who we should get to talk about this? Because I think that revolutions themselves can be kind of scary. We need someone who is an expert in all things scary. So let me just call up Sarah Rowe and see if she's available. Sarah, Sarah, are you there? Hello. Who's this? Oh, this is Kyle and Dave. Oh, and where's the machine? Is she still around? They're, That's they're a good over question. there in the corner. Honestly, they're... that is a very good question, Kyle. Where is the machine? Where has the <laughs> it's machine around. been? It's around. It's doing stuff. It's amorphous. Humanity is a plague and I can't wait for it to end. We haven't been on Earth for quite a while. We're still on this spaceship traveling back to Earth, but hopefully we'll be returning very, very soon. No rush, though. It's, uh, it's a mess down here. Yeah, that's what I've heard. It's, uh, it's kind of going uh, to hell in a handbasket in, in so many ways. Sarah, do you have like five hours to spend watching a movie and then talking about it? Always. Do you know what I oh, do perfect. for a living? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, yes, that's a good thing to start off with. You, of course, are the host of Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast You know that goes to every horror film ever made chronologically, and then you rate them. What can you tell us about Scream Scene? Well, you kind of covered it in a nutshell there. We are in the midst of 1957, um, over 200 episodes, uh, because horror as a genre starts in like the late 1800s, so... Lots of content for people to go through if they are interested to see how the genre develops. 
Yeah, I am a big fan of the show, of course. I love the fact that we are now getting into like the Hammer Horror series, which I'm a big fan of. But I'm, we're almost into the 60s, too. So uh, that's when things kind of pop off in, in, a, in a quite few different ways. Yes. Um, so I'm excited to listen in and see how it evolves. Honestly, my biggest thing recently is, and I, I guess I never really fully comprehended this is just the evolution of the zombie has been fascinating to be kind of watching like it isn't quite what we think of a zombie yet but it's yeah. almost there it has all these different influences and pretty soon you're going to get no like this is what a zombie is yeah honestly uh if you want me to go into it uh mm -hmm. zombie traditionally is like the haitian zombie where they're brought back to life through voodoo what we think of today as like oh the undead rising is more like a ghoul but we call them zombies because of George Romero, basically, uh, in Night of the Living Dead. But it's completely changing um, the way we, we think about, like, the undead. Uh, what does it mean to be forced to work after death? Uh, the fact that the zombie originates through voodoo in Haiti with a long history of colonialism and slavery and being one of the first countries uh, to... <laughs> fight off uh, against colonizers and slavers. Mm -hmm. Speaking of revolution, uh, right. that's how that ties into today's topic. <laughs> I know. No, it's, it's great because we've, we only very briefly touched on some of those themes in uh, Dave's, one of his most hated movies, but uh, something I actually had fun with, which was the Omega Man this year, <laughs> which is basically... <laughs> I don't know. If, can people hear me shaking my head? Yeah, I know. Go ahead. Nope. Yeah. Nope. I'll, put, I'll put Foley in afterwards, Dave, so that people know that you're shaking your head. Just so that we know, uh, when we do the background, Rob, uh, was it Steiger? Steiger? Rod Steiger, yeah. Yeah, described Charlton Heston as America's favorite fascist. So. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Yeah. He was pretty left-wing, as from what I understand Rod Steiger was. But. Yeah. <laughs> I bet he wouldn't have been able to survive on a planet full of apes, though. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into that and break it down. But I think this is where we really need to start. We are going to be talking about a Sergio Leone movie here today, Ducky Sucker. Well, that's one of its many names that it's known by. But I, I think... What we should first kind of understand is, Sarah, what is your history with Sergio Leone? Sergio Leone. Um, Leone. Oh, sorry. I, sorry I grew up watching his movies um, because his spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, um, the Man With No Name trilogy, are quintessential dad movies to throw on mm -hmm. on a Saturday afternoon. Um, so watch those quite often. I didn't really get into his Once Upon a Time series uh trilogy um starting with once upon a time in the west then this movie with in the revolution and then in america with the third one um until later in life and i think that that trilogy is probably one of his best uh but also a little contentious for me personally i really like once upon a time in the west rewatching once upon a time in the revolution i'm like oh no i really like this movie not a fan of Once Upon a Time in America. I understand what he's mm. doing, but, you know, whatever. And that's not even All really four a four hours of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, too much De Niro. <laughs> you can never have too much De Niro. Come on, Dave. But those are mainly my experiences with Leone movies. Um, I'm not very familiar with any of his work outside of those major works. Well, to be honest, and this is something that I was actually somewhat 
surprised by. I didn't. I just thought that Leone had like this extensive career. He only directed eight movies in his entire life. Oh. So you have The Man With No Name, which is three, The uh, Once Upon a Time are three, and he needed two earlier films. That's it. Those are his eight movies that he directed. He wrote a bunch more movies, but as far as like directing goes, mm-hmm. it was only the eight that he actually did. How about you, Dave? What is your history with Leone? Pretty much the same as Sarah. Uh, my dad didn't watch movies and he didn't hang out with us. But uh, yeah, I grew up watching Clint and the conception of a Western film is solely a Leone film world. Uh, I didn't actually watch Shane or The Duke or any of these like classic Western films until later because uh, I didn't care. I don't know if we want to use the word zeitgeist, like the world that I grew up in, that's Clint's world. And I, those are all defined by the Leone style. Really, we all just live in Clint's world, Dave. Actually, yeah. After researching Clint, we we do. We, <laughs> we do. Yeah. It's pretty frightening how much influence he has over uh, my perception of reality. Anyways, Leone's great. I have always liked his works. I understand, sir, too, that Once Upon a Time in America is really long. And I remember the first time I watched it, I think I just hung in there because I liked the Leone Western so much. And I haven't watched that movie in a long time, so I'll have to go back to before I render my opinion. I had no idea this movie existed, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think because of all the name changes, I didn't even realize that there was a missing Once Upon a something film in between. And I loved uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. So as Kyle brought up, since he only made eight movies, I feel pretty good. I feel like I've right. seen everything he's made. So I, I know him really well. Me and Sergio. You know, <laughs> We're tight. We get I, each uh, other, yeah. Just for people listening, I think it just needs to be said, and, and maybe everyone knows this, but I just want to state it out. Right. We keep saying like trilogy and series. They don't really follow one after the other, right? Like the names are somewhat similar. Like when you look at the good, the bad, and the ugly, but there's... um. A fistful of dollars and a few dollars more. And even this series, like the themes are what kind of tie them together, mm-hmm. but it has nothing as far as like characters or plot or anything like that. It's really just the themes that are that are similar. As far as my history with Leone, uh it really is the Man with No Name series. Those are the only films I have watched of his up until this point. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago about some of the films that are located on my uh, list of shame of movies I have not seen yet. Seven Samurai. Yeah, Seven Samurai. Just watch the just, just watch, watch it, it. Just watch it. Kyle. Right? It's like it's like once upon a time in America. I don't have no, four and a half not. hours to spend. It's not. It's not like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that. You don't even notice the time passing. Honestly, yeah, that's it's, what I keep being told. It's Chef's Kiss. So stubborn. Anyways, right? I still have to watch Ugh. the second Space Jam, so I'm gonna watch. The- <laughs> no, you don't. Uh, I actually watched it last night. It's one of the worst films I've ever seen. Anyway, so oh, the decision making process. Those are the films I've, I, I am most familiar with, and what I've always resonated with is, yes, his filming style. Like, you kind of know it's him just by watching the shot composition, what he's interested in. Dave, it's interesting to say that those are, that's your introduction to Westerns, because he was being very consciously making these films in retaliation to the American Western. Like, he was definitely using them to comment on it and to try and demystify what we've been talking about over the last few weeks about the myth of the cowboy, right? America loved to have this uh, portrayal of the cowboys being, like, the, you know, singular white man hat. out on the range, white hat guy riding in and saving people, which was, like, far from the truth of what the real experience of cowboys was. You mean and, America's not like that anymore? Well, some people would would like to to be but uh again my it's not like my father was like big into westerns it just seems to happen that i saw a bunch of like 
John Wayne and older westerns when I was growing up, whether that was on the CBC or not, I don't remember. It just was on the television and I watched it's part, it. It's part of your Rocky Mountain House membership yeah. profile. Yeah, Correct. it's required view. <laughs> you have to watch those in order to be a to be a member. But if you haven't watched Shane, you're kicked out of you're run out of town. <laughs> I just like you, Dave. I have literally never heard about this movie in my life. You two should get out more. What I am excited by is to actually delve into it and. and deconstructed and see how you know is an involvement of his style so uh, i'm excited to do that so let's do that now dave and i are going to go thank some sponsors but then when we return we'll be talking a lot about duck you sucker or is it duck you sucker i don't know how to use the uh, the, the punctuation duck in this title. You sucker. Yeah, yeah i want to hear your coburn <laughs> i wish <laughs> hey I, I and i mean this with a hundred percent what's the veracity right word and honesty, I, I, honesty <laughs> with a hundred percent honesty <laughs> James Coburn could just read the phone book into my ear and it'd be like amazing. No, don't to me. go on. Yeah. Like ASMR with his voice is like <laughs> off the charts for me. I just love his voice so much. Not quite sure about the Irish accent, but we'll just, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a moment. <laughs> How often do you duck and or suck, Dave? It's a very personal question. The real question is, do you have to duck to suck? I've been in situations where I haven't, but... That'll be a conversation for a different day. This is a great way to open up our ad read segment, Dave. I'm sure our sponsors are loving this. <laughs> it's going to be doing a lot of bleeping. Yeah. Right, right. You know, Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, proudly supporting community needs for 65 years. Everyone wants to feel a sense of belonging. Yes, even you, Dave, often want to have a sense of belonging. Now, mm. more than ever, we are united by a desire to take action and help others by creating a community built on kindness and compassion. What an interesting ad read to use in a episode all devoted to revolution. We want to build a community on kindness and compassion. From small creative projects to larger citizen-led initiatives, the Calgary Foundation provides grassroots grants to encourage and support people who want to create and strengthen bonds between neighbors and communities. If you've got an idea to improve, enhance, or revitalize your community or neighborhood, visit calgaryfoundation.org to find out more about the Foundation's grant opportunities and visit the Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTube channel. Just do that right now. You have four tabs open. It's easy. <laughs> let, let me ask you a question, Kyle. Have you ever wondered what it takes to create a good life in an equally good society? One Every where day. people, businesses, and the environment can flourish? Correct. Yes. <laughs> well, this is why we have a message from the uh, Business Council of Alberta. Alberta Better is a podcast by the Business Council of Alberta, and it's on a journey to understand what it takes to create a good life here in Alberta and how we, as Albertans, businesses, and governments can shape our society so everyone prospers. Find new episodes of Alberta Better on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen at businesscouncilab.com slash Podcast. That's betterbusinesscouncilab.com slash Alberta Better Podcast. New episodes drop every other Tuesday. Okay, and uh, I should just announce this here right now. I, I'm actually springing this on Dave. I'm springing this on Dave. Uh, and hopefully you haven't skipped over the rest of this segment. There is today, as this episode goes live, a movie that came out on Netflix called 
He's All That, which is an update <laughs> to She's All That. And we're going to talk about that movie oh, as a on. bonus episode <laughs> coming out sometime in the next few days. So there's going to be like two episodes out next week, one on He's All That, and then our regularly scheduled episode next week. I intentionally did not click the reminder in my uh, new release section of my Netflix, Kyle. This is well, going to the, mach- the machine just told me about it, Dave. I, I don't have any authority over this. So. so we have just finished watching Ducky Sucker. And I think we just need to open this up. Sarah, what are your impressions having, I guess, rewatched this film? Yeah, uh, this movie is always better than I th- remember. I love the characters. I love the storytelling and the cin- cinematography. Um, but I mean, that's pretty typical with Sergio Leone for me. And then, of course, Ennio Morricone with the music. Coburn can get it. Let's just put that out there. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Ooh. Is it hot out here or is yeah, it just yeah, the revolution? It's Ooh, warm it yeah, up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I really enjoy this movie. Dave, how about yourself? Yeah, it's a Leone movie, so it is both too long and too short. It mm. uh, finds a way to be deliberate and slow at some points, but at the same time exciting. It's a strange... All of his movies are like that. There's a strange uh, tension where... There'll be a moment where I'm like, should I turn this off? And then I wait one more minute. I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And <laughs> right. there are, I mean, I don't think this is his best film. Uh, there are some very strange decisions. But overall, I'm glad I watched it. And it's a great way I'm praying that we cap off Westerns of this uh, thing. Because we've watched way too many. And I'm tired of mm-hmm. talking about it. Uh, and I'm glad we're here with uh, the type of Western I grew up with, as we talked in the intro. So I can't wait to dig in and and really be an asshole about this film. It's going to be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like really liked this movie. I mean, I, I get it. I can see for a lot of people how this movie could be classified as too long. And yet, at the same time... I was never bored with this movie. I am so invested in these characters. And there's definitely some really interesting stuff about revolutions in general. And Mm -hmm. all that stuff is like hitting my like intellectual part of my brain. But I think the majority of it hits my like emotional side, which is like, I just want to spend more time with these people. I want to see their adventures. I want to see where they go. Uh, I agree where I, I don't think this is like his best film that I have seen. But yeah, I was like super impressed by this for a movie that I have never heard of. I was like, why don't more people talk about this in his like oeuvre, to use a special word? Ooh, sounds it, French. Because it, it feels like, I, can't, I always forget the order. Like I re- always remember Good, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but there's one of like the other Dollars movies that I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is better than one of those. But I always forget <laughs> which, which one is which. <laughs> the really fascinating part about this movie that Leone is doing is combining, of course, like the the mexican revolution because this is being set during that time in the like early 1910s and then also coupling that with a member of like the ira in uh, ireland which i think would have been very resonant to people that have just come out of the 60s so i think he's very intentionally pairing two different ideas together mm-hmm. uh in this historical epic this is why if he got red sun it would have been the greatest film ever made Right, I think so too. Uh, yeah, we yeah, we don't have to relitigate Red Sun, Dave. That was last week's episode. <laughs> I'm just saying, there's a samurai and a cowboy. That's like, like, how do you screw this up? Yeah, uh, I know. Sarah, um, where do you want to start? I guess as being our guest here this week, there's a lot of different themes, there's a lot of different scenes that we could start with. But there is there anything that you want to start off the discussion with? With 
my show scream scene we always start with a context setting so let's just set the mm-hmm. scene here we're set in mexico specifically 1913 and i know that because of some of the name drops uh for who the leader is at the time in the opening carriage scene uh where all the rich folks are talking about the political situation in mexico right. and that's right at the beginning of a whole string of revolutions that mexico saw uh there's a 1910 revolution and then between 1911 to 13 there was um a more uh grassroots i guess you could say like a civilian uh president elected francisco Madero. And then 1913 to 1915 had the counter-revolution with a more um, tyrannical, let's say, uh, leader named Victoriano Huerta. Um, and that's who they specifically name as like being the leader at the time. So we know we're in 1913, but then there's like another revolution, 1915 to 1920. Um, and over the next 20 years, kind of a revolving door of leaders and revolution at this stage, when this movie's coming out in 1971, um, Mexico, along with many other places in the world, is seeing a bit more of a stable time, a lot of economic prosperity, and then counteract that with what's going on in Ireland. In the 1910s and earlier, like Ireland has had a very, very, very long history of um, fighting against uh, British rule, um, fighting for a republic um, rather than being owned, I guess, uh, by the British. Um, I am a little biased in in how I'm talking about this, for the record, uh, but it is a contentious topic. So mm-hmm. uh, just to completely be honest about my bias there. But the IRA specifically really heats up in 1916 with the Easter Rising, um, which would be set like after the time in this movie. So that's why I think that Leone is tying, oh gosh, what is his name? His character's name? Mallory. Mallory. There you go. John. John, John, of course. Tying John's membership to the IRA, especially with him being an explosives expert, to the more modern day troubles in Ireland in like the late 60s onwards, um, because all of that is really heating up. you know, strikes a match in like 1968 and is just going to get a little bit more bad as the years go on. But it's interesting that it's, I mean, we have the historical perspective now, but the 19, late 1960s in Ireland sees the beginnings of, you know, more violence and it continues to go on through the decades. So it's almost like a neat parallelism between Mexico in 1910s and Ireland in 1969. Yeah, I think that's definitely like the bedrock that this story is being um, set upon. Do you feel like Leone is trying to say anything specific about revolution inside of this movie? Like, where do you think he comes down on it? Here's one. That's one of my main problems with this movie is because Leone, I don't know the man, obviously. And I think he he's grappling with a lot of ideas around revolution, how it can be a good and a bad thing. And I think he comes down on the side of like, it's a thing, um, rather than saying like, good or bad, um, or having anything a little bit more um, in depth to say. Uh, there is a moment in the film where Juan, who is kind of, I think we could take as a Mexican everyman, who has this rant about how revolutions start. And he is... I believe they said that he's illiterate, um, he's poor, he's a thief, and he has this line of like, people who read the books go to the poor people, say we need a change, we make the change, poor people die during the revolution, and the people who have the books 
are around. And then it starts all over again. And he gets right. so angry about this. And you can even see that cycle that he describes in the plot of the movie itself, um, where he loses his entire, spoilers, he loses his entire family um, and the revolution is only just beginning. When Juan has that rant, John at the time is reading a book called The Patriotism by uh, Mikhail Bakunin, Bakunin, right. um, who's a, a Russian revolutionary, on the more, more on the side of anarchism. And what is so interesting is he, Bakunin, is an, an outlier when it comes to Russian revolutionaries. He was seen as more of a radical than um, even Marx. Um, there was actually a lot of contention there, and we don't need to go into it because it's kind of extraneous. But it's so interesting that like the text that Leone specifically calls out as being thrown into the mud after hearing this impassioned speech from Juan is something that specifically talks about direct action of the masses overthrowing the state and that the state should be run by the masses, which honestly is like putting Bakunin, this is oversimplifying it, but putting Bakunin closer to what we think of traditional democracy than most of the other socialist, communist kind of mm. rhetoric around revolutions. I don't think it's a coincidence that he chooses a Russian to do that because um, kind of the biggest revolution in our minds would be the uh, Bolshevik revolution at the time. So it, it's just interesting and it muddies the waters, I think, um, because it's not like he's throwing Karl Marx into the dirt. He's throwing this uh, outlier to existing revolutions of the time. Right. I say all of that to come to the point of Leone is engaging with things, but they aren't really synthesized and they aren't really cohesive. They're disparate things. And so he has a lot of thoughts and feelings around revolutions and he just kind of puts them out there and kind of leaves it to you to think about it uh, without offering a conclusion or a thesis statement at the end, basically. Yeah. There's this idea sometimes about like, well, the people who know about this work of art, the best is going to be the person who created it. And I think oftentimes, even what your intentions are when you create something are not necessarily what happens when people consume it. Leone himself has said like, this really wasn't a movie he was making to criticize revolutions. It was really just a character study that he was wanting to focus on mm -hmm. using revolution as the backdrop for all these ideas essentially he wanted to do a what he called a reverse pygmalion so instead of like the learned person teaching something to someone who was lower class it was a lower class person teaching something to someone who was of higher learning and that's basically what happens throughout this movie but dave i'm curious about you like what did you take from this movie as far as the revolution goes if i think about every sergio leone movie and i think about this film what i wrote down in my notes is that ultimately He's always interested, I think, on sort of this existential problem of what does it take for an individual to be motivated to do the right thing? So all of his characters are always uh, gross, self-interested. They're not there for the greater good. They don't have a polarizing opinion about anything except perhaps survival and self-betterment. You've just described the ideal person I'd want to date. And we start off this film with the same thing. It is... A little bit, not jarring, it was surprising to see this film open up with a quote from Mao Zedong. Like, you're just like, what? Why? 
You know, it's kind of... Which was cut from the American copies of the film, by the way. I- I'm surprised they showed this film in America at all. Huax <laughs> uh, not too happy, I'm sure, at this point. But actually, no, it's probably because the It's gone by dead. this time, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, otherwise, they would have assassinated Sergio Leone. Um, I think that there's... It's so over, like it's so in your face that the concept of revolution is depicted almost in every scene. But I wonder if we, particularly as North Americans, want polarity. We want people to pick a side and say something really strong about anything. But Europe at this time, through both post-war and its next generation sort of thinking, plus they're going through so much turmoil. I mean, North Americans don't understand uh, in principle what it's like to live compressed with 50 other cultures where you can walk across borders. So, you know, we don't actually understand the experience of, let's say, being Italian. Italy, of course, just came out of their own dictatorship. And Leone is old enough to have seen uh, all of the errors of humanity and how people flip-flop and, and just survive. So it was interesting to go through this. You know, you get everything from uh, yeah, we, I don't know. We didn't talk about this. On, so we get everything with the opening of this sort of uh, depiction of class uh, mm-hmm. and the bourgeois. But he he always, you know, instead of the eyes, he does all that weird mouth focusing and, and making them so disgusting. And and with the uh, with the female, we should talk about that. But with the female, uh, like the way she's sucking on the cherry, like he he's very intentional about stuff like that. He has a very uh, deep seated, uh, I think, anger towards the idea of uh, personal wealth and the financial elite that seems to tell everybody what to do. But at the same time, neither John or Juan are there for the revolution. They get suckered in. And I kept thinking, this movie is about, I think the thesis is people only act when it happens to them. And we see that today, like with COVID, we see that with political movements. So like, Personally, I'll put this out there. You know, Alberta did this stupid thing with the tracing. I didn't go to any of the marches for the health thing, but I can guarantee if my kid got COVID, I would have been out there every lunch in front of City Hall. And so that's all I kept thinking about in the context of this film. I mean, the whole idea of Juan is that he just does not give a shit until he loses his kids. And he he loses a few on the way and he's still like, ah, you know, I've got like four left. <laughs> and then when he when he loses the babies... And there's some awkward things we should talk about, like just in terms of production. Like there's no lead up to that scene. I I wonder if they fucked up some of the footage and they just had to edit some pieces in. But it was a little weird for them to appear in the cave. And then all of a sudden he has this big speech about how they went too far. That's where I think there's a line that Leone wants to draw when he's interviewed about whether this is a political film. Because I think intentionally he doesn't want uh, to tell people whether it's good or bad. I think he just wants to show that uh, people are in it, not because they actually believe what they're doing, but mm-hmm. they have no choice. You know, if you live in Mexico in this era, you can either live on a on a farm and try not to get involved, or if they kill your whole family, got to go pick up a gun. And Juan doesn't enjoy it, which is the most fascinating part. Yeah. In the end, he still wants to just disappear. But Well, that's what I love. Like for at least the first half, if not longer, his main motivators, I just want to steal the money and I want to go away. Like That's all I care about. Mm-hmm. I just want to rob this bank and get out of here. And he con- consistently gets suckered in and becomes this revolutionary hero by the end of it. Like He's looked at as like this big hero. For me, in the way that my brain works, there is three different connections that this film started to bring out for me that all could not be more different from one another. But have either of you seen the 1930 film All Quiet on the Western Front? Only clips. Okay. So 
that is a fascinating movie to watch because, of course, made in 1930, so between the two world wars, but focuses on the Germans of World War One. And partway through that movie, like Dave, you mentioned that one speech. There is a very similar thing that happens in that movie. It's like all these wars are are rich people sending poor kids out to die so that they become so that they can become richer. And it's like, whoa, that is a really fascinating point of view, which I'm sure other people had. But to be put into like a mainstream film that wins the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1930 is like this is wild that this is like how progressive this movie is back in this time. But what I kept thinking about, because I always have to use a musical reference in these episodes, Dave. So here's my quota. There is a musical called A Chorus Line. And A Chorus Line is basically about all these people auditioning for this big show. You you never really see the show. Uh, It's all these people who are getting cut or getting cast and their backstories and all that kind of stuff. And that's what it felt like to me. Like, this is a Western. There's basically a chorus line where you see all these actors. You never really see the revolution in any, like, great detail. You see edges of it you see like assassinations you see firing squads you see them uh doing things but it's not like we're in the front lines of people planning the revolution at any point within this movie but we understand what's going on but i I keep coming back to that uh sergio leone quote about him like this is what my intention was and i always remember in like the early years of the daily show with john stewart and he would be interviewed and he's like i'm not a political show we're a comedy show and we're just doing comedy and i always felt like Okay, but like you have to understand that people are using this to focus like their political viewpoint. What your intention is might be that, but that is not how it's being received on a greater scale. And I feel that's the same way here. It's like Mm -hmm. your intention might be for this to be a just a character setting that's all we care about. But it's like because of the scenes you're putting into here, there is a point of view that you're you're putting across. So all of those things together were kind of an interesting I know, melting pot of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, the the characters are what pulls me through this movie. But like I mentioned at the beginning, that intellectual side is peaked a lot because of all these things he drops in, like him throwing that book into the mud. That put me down like a huge rabbit hole of Wikipedia looking at that author. It's like, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and, and those speeches that are given and the eventual like uh, realization from the characters. Like all of that, again, I'm a big fan of this movie, but there's a lot of stuff that I think is going on here at the same time. I mean, is there a rhetorical question there? Like, can you read the Communist Manifesto without having to choose whether you're a communist or not? I mean, you know, using the book, bringing up these themes. I mean, you brought up John I didn't watch The Daily Show because I didn't have, it was a comedy center, whatever is on, I I didn't have access to it. But isn't he also a reflection of this sort of American capitalist dream where it's the power that corrupts him? Like at the beginning, probably knowing John Stewart and how he presented himself as a stand-up comedian, as as a comedian, there's, I don't think he, I mean, he was in fucking Half-Baked. I don't think he's a guy that thought he's he would have- He's a big daddy. We just talked about big daddy. Yeah. I don't think he was a guy who planned to have political influence in America. Right. Um, but because he garners, I, I feel like from the YouTube clips, the tone of his uh, show keeps evolving to much more uh, polarizing political space. And then Colbert's got to be invented to counterbalance him because he's so far on the left for comedy. I, I did air quotes. So I, I think what makes Sergio Leone's uh, description of himself so interesting is, as you brought up, he didn't make films after this. I mean, he made the Once Upon a Time in America, yeah. but he wasn't interested in pontificating this. It, mm-hmm. it, I could understand if he spent the next 20 years making, a, as we see with the decline of directors, shittier and shittier revolutionary films. We, we could definitely have a conversation about this is a starting point, but I don't know. He, he made this film. He's like, ah, I didn't even want to make this one. You know? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> I think it's really interesting how he was involved in the writing process as well as being the director. So he had mm -hmm. his hands on every aspect of this movie being created. Him saying, well, I didn't want this to be political. Mm, even if that wasn't your intent, like anything we do is political. I'm yeah. very much someone who agrees that the personal is political. Political isn't good nor bad. It just contributes to the overarching milieu of the, our culture, I guess you could say. And I do think that this movie is inherently uh, inherently political. One of your main characters is a member of the IRA. I know. Yeah. <laughs> like, But he, does, he doesn't uh, romanticize it. And we don't see him actually fighting it. We just see him betrayed. And this weird, and we should talk as well about the love triangle, which is... <laughs> Maybe I think the weakest part of the film, but weakest, um, <laughs> David. <laughs> All right, let's go there quickly so that we can have uh, the real fight. Let's let's do this actually. <laughs> let's let's talk about that after we do some backstory here, because yeah, there's a lot I think we can um, talk about there. My laugh clipped the recording. It's great. So oh, it's I great. Know it's gonna be a good episode. I cut out all your laughs anyways, David. It doesn't matter. Um, you could probably cut out even more. So, Duck You Sucker was released on October 29th, 1971. It is currently rated 7.6 on IMDb. It has a 77 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 24 critics, it's at 92%. And from 10,000 plus users, it's at 83%. This is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it on iTunes. You can also buy or rent it on YouTube. In Canada, there's not a place to, like, stream it. But there are those, again digital places that you can consume it. As we have discovered with a lot of 1971 films, I don't have a lot of information as far as like budget and all that kind of stuff. I just don't know. Really as far as what it made, it was a little bit of a disappointment in, well, definitely in America and even in Europe. In Italy, it told me in Lira what it made in Italy. <laughs> so I had to go to 1971, do a conversion into American dollars, and then do the inflation calculator to see what that meant. Because it was like 1.8 billion Lira. Like, what does that mean? Anyways, that means it made 2.9 million American dollars in Italy, uh, which due to an inflation would mean it made 19 million dollars. Just in Italy, it made that, that amount of money. Its plot description is a low-life bandit and an IRA explosives expert rebel against the government and become heroes of the Mexican Revolution. It stars Rod Steiger as Juan Miranda, James Coburn as John H. Mallory, and Romulo Valley as Dr. Vallega. Uh, what do we want to say about those actors? Let me think. I mean, James Coburn's James Coburn. I think what's fascinating about him is, uh, I mean, other than him, is, you know, as he's building up being James Coburn, apparently he was offered uh, the role of the man with no name and mm -hmm. he turned it down because they were going to pay him enough money. So he invented Clint, which is great. And uh, I didn't know this. He was a pallbearer for Bruce Lee. He was yeah. a, he was a yeah. student of Jeet Kune Do. Yeah, the end of his life ends a little sad. He got this arthritis that started like deforming his body and constant pain, which sucks. The other thing that I learned, this is just so weird. So he was, his father was a garage mechanic whose business failed during the Great Depression, but apparently he's got like an obsession with cars. He, he uh, introduced Steve McQueen to Ferraris. Uh, so I don't know. Wow. Yeah. So okay. that's something. And he owned a Ferrari Spider. And the reason why this is in Wikipedia apparently is that he owned this thing for 28 years, kept, you know, kind of like what car aficionado thing, like taking care, babying it. It was recently auctioned in 2008 for $11 million. Wow. For a car. I, I <laughs> don't get it. I, uh, so that came up. 
So uh, yeah, <laughs> so great. Expensive so if car. You want a spider? Then there you go. Find James well, yeah. Coburn's. Rod Steiger's crazy. I yeah. Can I just say to interrupt yeah. just for a second yes. for Rod Steiger? My biggest frame of reference for Rod Steiger is in the heat of the night. Of course, mm-hmm. like that's kind of how I know him. This is so bad. I was 45 minutes into this film. I'm like, when's Rod Steiger showing up? When, when is he going to show up on screen? Because this, he does not look like Rod Steiger in this movie to me. It's like, this is not how I envisioned Rod Steiger. And then I like, okay, pause, like looked it up. It's like, he's going to become like the, like a, a guy who just shows up. It's like, oh no, he's Juan. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Method, baby. Method, Method. baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, he probably would not be cast nowadays if uh, they were yeah. remaking this movie, but. He looked pretty good. Am I racist now? I mean, I still call it Spaghetti Western, so. Well, yeah, the standards of like who, what, what actors can play, what race, uh, were a little different in 1971. Oh, yeah. Uh, still well, not good. Still not, not great, great yeah. but it right. was the standard. So we won't get uh, John Wayne playing Genghis Khan. No? <laughs> right, so, right. I'm just poking at the Duke now because I'm, I'm sure Poke all him. the hate mail's coming. Wait, what can he do racist. about it? He's dead. <laughs> yeah, he's dead. He's like super well, he's- dead. <laughs> Patrick Wayne is still alive, although he kept punching him in the face, so I, I don't think he cares. <laughs> yeah, Rod Steiger's, oh man, like so, the brief history, he's the son of a famous vaudeville actor who was not present in his life. His mother was an actress, but she uh, succumbs to uh, alcoholism. They're, she's like the town drunk as they're moving around. He's molested by a pedophile at the age five. That's depressing, yeah. man. He actually, did you read the story about uh, him signing up for the Navy and the things no. that like happened during the World War II? So he's in the U.S. Navy. He, unlike uh, the Duke, actually participated in Iwo Jima. He's actually fighting as a torpedo, torpedoist. I don't Whoa. know. I can't remember the title. Um, and he is, like we talked with Dirk Borg- Bogart, the people who actually fought on the front lines are traumatized by this experience. Because World War II, I mean, all wars are disgusting, but that one in particular, they had some uh, very difficult situations. His big one uh, was that during one of the uh, routes... They were ordered to attack civilian ships in a harbor, uh, Mm. and he killed women and children. He could never get over that because that's fucking terrifying. And the other thing that was really interesting is his ship was, uh, there's a famous, a typhoon. I'm just trying to remember the name here. They record the waves at 80 feet and the winds at 150 miles per hour. Three destroyers are lost. His ship, that was called Halsey's Typhoon. His ship survives, and he said he was on the deck like in the old films, wrapped rope around his waist and had to lay flat on the deck Jeez. during all the title pour-overs just to try to live through it. And he survived that. So uh, the dude, <laughs> uh, pretty hardcore. Wow. It's fascinating. So he comes back after all that. And apparently his pension is like uh, a leaded apartment in New York City, which is likely a piece of shit, a hundred bucks a month. And he got some tuition to go back to school. So I, you don't get much for putting your body out on the line. And he only got into acting because apparently, you know, he's a big dude and he was working some odd jobs and he heard he could meet pretty girls in uh, acting class. But when he got his first role, which apparently wasn't really trying for, he got the bug and he became essentially one of the first and great method actors, you know, with yeah, Marlon and all these guys. Yeah. The mm-hmm. only thing I remember, and it's again, another movie that I have not seen, but I've heard great things about The Pawnbroker which is, I think it was right before In the Heat of the Night, but that's considered one of those movies that kind of started to like break the door open as far as like kind of more gritty stuff being shown on film. So he was kind of known for this type of th- thing mm-hmm. early in his career, for sure. He didn't get along with uh, Brando or, or Ilya Kazan. And like you brought up, 
he was staunchly anti-war when he came back and mm -hmm. uh he didn't like huac <laughs> go figure you don't say <laughs> and uh yeah so he he's got an interesting reputation like we hear about him as this oscar-winning great method actor but he really fell apart towards the end i think this is a theme with method actors that they eventually become sort of uh called out for going too deep and starting to overact so even the pawnbroker which i also haven't seen it actually polarized critics so he's lauded as this great method actor for that film but he also was attacked for a a depiction of a you know a jewish i think uh jewelry store yeah. owner a little bit uncut gems i think apparently they were saying like he he overdid it it's a negative portrayal of jewish people etc uh all the while uh getting uh lauded by the other half of the critics and by history saying what an amazing person like we see in this film oh i didn't even know he was in it and he's like the star but he ended up descending to b movie films and just kind of disappearing so uh, i can't remember if there's anything else with him oh he has this one thing where he met he was in Oklahoma and he met a young James Dean uh, mm -hmm. who auditioned for a part but didn't get it. And apparently, uh, first he was quoted at the time, uh, sort of that he could see that James Dean was not doing well. Uh, I mean, right. I think growing up with an alcoholic mother, he probably has a very close understanding of what it's like to be in the disease. But apparently James Dean gave him a book, an original Hemingway book, mm. that every time the word death appeared, it was underlined. Which is pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's uh, that's a weird thing I read there too about Stag. He has a very uh, yeah, tumultual, tumultuous life. Mm -hmm. mm. Well, and I, I didn't find anything about the third actor. Okay. Like, yeah, I think he's he mainly just like yeah. an Italian actor, character actor there. Trying to go uh, segue from that, this is a, a story was by Sergio Leone and Sergio Donati. Screenplay by those two gentlemen, as well as Luciano Vincenzoni. Uh, with additional dialogue by Roberto De Linardis and Carlo Trito, directed, of course, by Sergio Leone. So it kind of starts during the filming of his previous film, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. So his frequent collaborator, this is Leone's frequent collaborator, Sergio Donati, gives him this treatment for this film. And he was inspired because at the time in Europe, there were riots breaking out in Paris and the ideals of like revolution, this general revolution. Uh, in particular, left-wing nationalism were becoming very popular amongst university students in Europe. So he felt compelled that he wanted to try and write something about that. But so right from the beginning, though, there was kind of this disagreement about how they wanted to proceed because Leone envisioned this film as this huge, giant epic, mm. like widescreen epic film. While both the other writers, Donati and Vincenzoni, wanted this to be filmed like a low-budget thriller. So there's a little bit of disc disagreement there. However, in Leone's career right now, if you uh, don't know, yes, he had been making those like the three um, dollars trilogy films throughout the 60s. Uh, but in America, they were all released in the same year. So 1967. So they were kind of released like whatever, four months apart. <laughs> and so that kind of, you know, burst Clint Eastwood onto the stage. People started to understand, recognize his name. Then I think it's 69 is when Once Upon a Time in the West comes out. So he had this like cachet that was being built up. So United Artists comes knocking. It's like, hey, we want to kind of finance the next film of yours. But Leone doesn't want to be the director. He kind of states that at the beginning. Now, at the time, Donati conceived this to basically be 
an evolution of the character of Tuco from the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like that's who the main character is modeled after. And then because Leonie doesn't want to direct this, Dave, do you remember when we talked about this movie before this season? Yeah. Are you talking about Bogdanovich's film? Yeah. That's yeah. who he wanted it to direct it at first was Peter Bogdanovich. Have you seen the last picture show, Sarah? No. Yeah. It's good. You don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Dave uh, was. It's an American classic, but uh... <laughs> yeah, there's many American classics that you're like, mm, you don't actually need to see this. <laughs> All right, we'll t- we'll table that discussion for a later time. But Peter Bogdanovich <laughs> is asked to direct this. He gets flown to Rome. He works on a couple of weeks, and then that relationship basically breaks down. Uh, and like you just said, he goes on to make the Last Picture Show. He wrote about this. Bogdanovich wrote about this in New York Magazine in 1973. I just picked out a kind of a smaller paragraph section he wrote uh but my favorite story conferences began with sergio making a dramatic and terribly serious entrance six hours late and warning us not to forget that the movie we were making was really about jesus christ i believe this was occasioned by a new set of reviews sergio had read from france or the american avant-garde which searched out the hidden religious symbolism and significant nuances in his latest film once upon a time in the west for over an hour at least once a week therefore luciano and i had to listen to a lecture on how the irishman in this movie ducky sucker was really a metaphor for christ luciano had to listen that is since the lecture was in italian and after the first time or two he spared me the translation i would usually place my hand on my brow meditatively in order to shield my eyes in case they inadvertently closed for too long a time i didn't physically write a thing nor i had ever been asked to luciano had to do that poor fellow and i'm afraid i ran when i read the result of our few weeks of work It was a Sergio Leone movie, without a doubt, and that's who should be directing it. And I told United Artists this, which is ultimately what happened. After an initial release failed to spark much interest, a quick title switch was made to A Fistful of Dynamite, but that didn't help. The French critics loved it, though, several American ones as well. I quite liked it myself, all but the serious parts. I'd enjoyed those more when Sergio acted them out himself. So that's what Bogdanovich had what uh, wrote about his time on this film. Interesting. Irish Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when he turns it down, Leone then goes and gets his assistant director, this man named Giancarlo Santi. But after a week, Rod Steiger refused to work with him unless Leone came to direct it himself. And so the stalemate meant that Leone basically begrudgingly worked as the director on this movie. The casting, I don't know if either of you read about the casting process for this movie, but that is a bit of a mess too. So Leone initially wants Jason Robards to be in the James Coburn role, but United Artists says no. They just completely block and say, we need a bigger name to draw tickets to. So Leone says, okay, you want a big name? Who's the biggest name right now? Let's get Clint Eastwood to come back. But Eastwood saw it as just another extension of the roles he had already played in the other three films. So he also turned it down. So get this, their next go-to was George Lazenby. (laughs) (laughs) I think he would have been able to do it, honestly. His James Bond is really good. He could have probably done the Irish accent a little bit better than James (laughs) Coburn does, for sure. Uh, Lazenby just turns him down flat, though. He also says no. Their next option was Malcolm McDowell, is who oh, they decided, wow. the, who they wanted to have. Sure. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I think that was another United Artist said no to that because he had not made a Clockwork Orange yet uh, at this point. And really young. He would have been yeah. a kid still. Yeah, yeah. yeah early 20s, in his 20s. Early but 20s, finally, yeah. so they finally went with Coburn, an actor that Leone had wanted to work with for many years anyways. Like you mentioned, uh, Dave, like they had wanted him for the Dollars Trilogy. For the role that went to Rod Steiger, I mentioned this before, but they had the character of Tuco in mind. So 
of course, why wouldn't you go and get Eli Wallach to be in that part? Well, they did. Leone had to beg him to be in this movie because Wallach was already in the filming process of another movie. He gets begged to do it. So he actually breaks his contract with that movie and says, okay, I'm breaking my contract. I'm going to where I'm going to go be in this movie. And that's when United Artists steps in once again and says, no, we're not going to cast you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> they demand Rod Steiger be put in this movie because he still owed them one more film and a contract he had signed with them. And Eli Wallach would actually go on to sue this movie because he had to he broke his contract because he was promised to be in it and then was not uh, hired to be on this movie. Did he win? I don't know. I didn't look into it that <sighs> far, but... Get one back from the man. <laughs> the look of this film has a bunch of different influences, one of them being the paintings from Goya. Dave, you might be able to speak more to that than what I can, but uh, it also has a lot of references to Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. That was another inspiration that they had. And some plot points are weirdly, like, very similar to another Western that James Coburn is in that was released in 72, though, called Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. I have not seen that movie, unfortunately, but apparently, like, a whole plot line is the carbon copy the exact same <laughs> in these two movies. Not a not fun Young Guns. Right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, as just like an aside, I don't know if either of you agree, if he isn't an inspiration, I would be so shocked because there's so many shots in this that remind me of steven spielberg that's like spielberg had to have been influenced by the filming of sergio leone i mean a lot of filmmakers are but specifically like there's scenes in this that remind me of not just raiders but there's stuff that like are echoing of like schindler's list and all this other stuff that have well, to be inspirations if you know if you ever watched a kurosawa film you could say the same thing about anything kurosawa directed well, I, all the great he wears that on his sleeve though spielberg says he's influenced by kurosawa yeah well that's the saying. thing but uh, Leone is influenced by Kurosawa too. Mm -hmm. And he's true. literally yeah, yeah. lifting the films and, and translating them into mm -hmm. uh, an Italian translation of American films or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Leone influences him. So, yeah. So it, it's, it's a mishmash. Yeah. There's no such thing as an original idea. The naming of this movie also has a bit of controversy behind it too. Leone felt very strongly that duck you sucker was a common English phrase. He was convinced that people said that all the time in America. Uh, Bogdanovich also writes about this. He's like, no, like nobody says this <laughs> over here. That is not something that people say. In Italian, there's this phrase, I'm going to totally butcher the Italian, but uh, Gio la testa coglione, which Sounds translated like basically... Yeah. No, say yes. it, do it again. It yeah. is, yes. It does reference a testicle. Yeah. So it's duck your head dumbass is what that would translate to. But coglione is also a slang term for testicles. So there's this double meaning that he's playing around with here. Yes, Italian audiences are going to pick up on this. English audiences are like, no, we don't, we don't know what this means. Anyways, regardless, that is the name that it was released in Europe with uh, and was released in that way in America, at least at first. But... It doesn't perform very well. We talked about Red Sun. It actually, Red Sun outgrosses this movie in Italy. And it basically bombs the United States. Uh, so, and, and another thing going against it a little bit is that when it was released in the US, it got 35 minutes cut out of the runtime. Uh, a lot of that is the flashback sequences that get completely removed, uh, as well as the extreme violence uh, and swearing that are in, in the parts of this movie. Now, what happens is, this is also something I found out, the way that uh, Leone made his films, 
specifically with the music involved is that it's timed 100% to the music. So like the music is almost being made at the same time as it's being blocked and stuff like that. So when you do these weird cuts, then things like really feel jarring because it's like, whoa, like what is happening? So it gets retitled to A Fistful of Dynamite to try and make people understand that this is the same guy who made A Fistful of Dollars. And then just to make things confusing, in some other markets, it's released as Once Upon a Time, The Revolution. So there's three names for this movie. Which one, which one do you think is correct? I mean, I don't mind The Fistful of Dynamite. I actually like that name. It actually references something that's happening in the movie a little bit. Although I do like Once Upon a Time, A Revolution, just to have the Once Upon a Time be mm-hmm. all throughout all three films. Personally, I like In the Revolution because it brings the mythic quality that Leone likes to put in his movies kind of to the forefront of like yeah. this being a mythic story. But Duck You Sucker. The it's so bold. It's, it's like, so bold. Why not? They say it in the movie uh, multiple times. It comes up at the end. Like it's I love it when movies do that. Mm-hmm. So you can say that's the name of the movie. <laughs> the other big thing. Now, this is, I will say, depending on your interpretation, uh, the Juan character at the very end, he rises up and he asks himself a question. What am I to do? Where, what about me? What, the, what about me? Ducky Sucker is the answer to that question he poses. So if you put a different name there, it doesn't mm-hmm. actually quite make sense uh, as far as the title card goes. That's, again, I maybe an interpretation thing, but it does feel like that is the answer to the, to the question that he just posed. Mm-hmm. But Dave, you asked the question, is there one that you prefer? Oh, I was just thinking, I wish they'd used testicles in it, because uh, I think <laughs> it would testicles, better. that's yeah. what they should have called it, yeah. Or just call it the testicles, with, uh, with the sound of a pan flute or something underneath. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, the only other thing is the sound mixing element to this movie. Uh, I am not going to pretend that I really understand a whole lot of this. All I know is that an- initially how this movie would have been made in 1971 would have been mono audio, so everything on the same track and mixed that way. In newer releases, you can sometimes pick on like DVD or Blu-ray options, whether or not you want the stereo mix or if you want the mono mix. With the stereo mix, a lot of times they have redone the uh, special effects sounds and stuff like that. So things can sound weird and off-putting because they're doing like modern special effects sounds in an older movie. And some of the people's voices sometimes don't like come above the music and stuff like that. So it's one of those things that sometimes the stereo mix is not the best way to watch this movie. I will say... That is the ver- version I watched was the stereo mix. So I do not know. I cannot compare it to the mono mix itself. The other thing is how this is released also depends on which version of the movie you're watching. There's the cut down version that, is, that still floats around. There's another version that cuts about three minutes of the movie out. And then there's com- the completely uncut version that's out there too. Uh, as far as I know, the three minute version very much compresses the very last flashback. Um, so I don't know exactly what they cut out of that last flashback. Probably them running in the field is what I'm going to guess is what they have, they have cut out. Dave, why do you hate let's, Ireland? Yeah, why do you hate Ireland so much, Dave? Let's do it, Sarah. Let's, let's, let's talk well, about it. Before we get there, just very briefly, Leone passes away in 1989 um, after a few years before he'd released Once Upon a Time in America. Becomes the solution, says he never wants to make another a movie again, basically because they cut his four-hour movie down to two hours when they released it in the United States. Uh, Donati is still alive, but his most recent screenplay credit was from 2008. Vincenzoni also worked up until 2008, but passed away in 2013. And the only other thing to mention, or I just wanted to bring up, we call these things sometimes spaghetti westerns, which is also a bit of a derogatory descriptor, and that these films were created to, yes, we said, demythologize the western hero as the Americans had been pumping out 
that the Americans had been pumping out for decades. And because most of them were directed by Italians, of course, we call it spaghetti because that's what they like to eat, apparently. Uh, this is also a subset of that genre, often described as the Zapata Western. These are films that have a hero pair. One was normally a revolutionary Mexican bandit, and the other is normally an American frontiersman just interested in making money. So there's actually a, a whole genre of just that idea okay. <laughs> that, 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 are, that are made as well. Let's talk about that last flashback, because I actually have a lot to say about it. But well, Let's talk about all the flashbacks. Okay, yeah. <laughs> let's talk about the flashbacks in general. Sarah, how do you take a look at these flashbacks? Um, okay, so to set it up for the listener, throughout the film, uh, we get flashbacks to... John's time in the Irish Revolution. We'll see uh, originally him uh, riding in a buggy or like a car. Uh, his friend, who I believe his name is Sean, but the script, even though it's not said, mm -hmm. is Nolan, but I believe it's Sean. Um, he's driving the car and then John's like making out with his girlfriend. Who's like very young compared to James Coburn's face. But let's go. I'm just being an asshole. Yep. <laughs> keep going. Keep going. I'm listening. Okay. I'm listening. No worries. Um, the next flashback we see is Sean uh, passing up pamphlets pamphlets at a pub um, for Free mm -hmm. Ireland. And uh, I believe that's how John gets involved in uh, at least that iteration of the Irish Revolution. Later, uh, we see that Sean has gotten beaten up by uh, British uh, soldiers and has been taken to the pub to point out other revolutionaries so that they can be taken and dealt with by the authorities. During that particular flashback, we get two cuts of it. One where it's a question of like, will Sean point out John to the authorities? And then a second version of that flashback where, yes, he does indeed point out John and he turns with a gun and shoots the authorities and then shoots Sean in the head, um, despite possibly hesitating. Then the last flashback is possibly a flashback or because it's coming at the end of John's life, it could be what he wishes could have been where he, Sean, and John's girlfriend are running through a field having an idyllic time in idyllic Ireland. John's making out with his girlfriend and then suddenly the girlfriend turns to Sean and starts making out with him. And John looks on smiling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is where I, I don't know if this is me wish fulfillment. Uh, <laughs> I always try and bring like the, the queer reading into some of this stuff being the big old bisexual that I am. Like the way that, cause, because he is smiling, are we supposed to understand that they're all in like a relationship together? Or are they only both just in a relationship with the woman? I, like the, I think you can read it both ways, in my opinion. And that's why, yes, he's a friend, but he's also even more conflicted because that is kind of a lover at the same time. I think he's just been cut out of the film. <laughs> I think there's, there's three readings of this love triangle, I'll call it. So the most traditional would be, oh, it's a love triangle. Does Sean point out John to the authorities because he wants to get with the girlfriend and mm. get John out of the way? That's the most traditional reading that I see. Uh, there is that polyamorous reading that you've brought up, Kyle, uh, where it's a throuple and they're all in love together. And then there's a third reading that I personally really like. It's 1971. There's not a lot of queer movies or representation out there. Um, there's obviously been queer coding in the past, uh, even before HUAC became a thing. Mm -hmm. We don't even get the girlfriend's name. We don't really see her beyond 
kissing scenes. And it's very interesting to me that at the end, John kisses her, and then immediately after, she turns and kisses Sean, and John is happy about it. And so I see it as almost like, I don't know if it's intentional like this, but a reading that you could have is that John and Sean are actually lovers, and they had to have the girlfriend in there because, oh no, boys kissing on screen or something. Yeah, I think it's there. Now, Dave, you think it doesn't shouldn't be there at all. Why do you think all the flashbacks should be cut out? No, not all of them. I mean, I think that when the flashbacks are building up and they are uh, interlaced with sort of events that are happening to uh, John and Juan so that we start understanding why John is both reticent or reluctant to get involved with the heist and then get involved with the revolution. And then once he's in it, why he becomes sort of more passionate about the revolution than Juan does. Um, when I saw uh, the scene, you know, like you brought up, Sarah, there's two versions or a further memory of the finger pointing scene. And the the first one, you, you have the, or is it three? No, it doesn't matter. So the first one, we have that tension, like, is his friend going to sell him out? Because the the doctor selling out everybody in the Mexican mm -hmm. revolution or in that little uh, pod of the Mexican revolution. And when he does, you, I have this quick, I don't know, philosophical, but this quick ethical discussion in my mind about the effects of torture and loyalty. And, and then we get this bourgeois problem of the intellectuals versus the common man. And then it cuts back and we get back into the narrative. And when they come back, what I read was there's this great moment where we rewatch the scene and uh, Sean, I didn't even realize he had a name, uh, but he looks directly at John's face and they focus on how they look at each other so that when uh, John turns around to kill everybody, to me, it actually looked like Sean was accepting that he had to die for this betrayal because he doesn't turn away. He doesn't try to run. The shot is him just looking directly at John as the gun turns and shoots him in the head. And there's this slow motion sort of, I mean, it's hilarious to watch this, the small bullet hole from a shotgun, you know, just to have that moment. But he, he doesn't have fear. There's no resentment. It's not shot. And this is Sergio Leone who loves really overdoing these like close-ups so that you can really get a visceral understanding of how people are supposed to be feeling in the moment. That's why I feel like if we had kind of cut off there and this was all built around, I mean, whether it had to happen when it did, again, this is the thing with Sergio Leone movies, can you cut out 20 minutes in the middle somehow? Yes and no. I mean, if you lose the buildup, there's, there's still a payoff. Um, but when they cut back to them frolicking the field, I just, I couldn't understand... Even when they're making out in the car, that was so jarring to me. They're just driving and then he turns around. And I think, uh, and we should talk about this too, opening this film with uh, a, a rape scene mm -hmm. and kind of this, um, this humiliation of the uh, rich folks by making them naked and dumping them into shit. It created already a tension for me about how women are portrayed in, in films of this nature. And I'm willing in some sense to like not ask too hard a question because it is a Western, but then they do this cutback where this girl is in this car and for no reason, John just turns around. They start making out while this car's driving down a path. And I, I just, I was literally watching like this. I was like, what, what does this have to do with anything? We can... We can depict their friendship and their involvement in a revolution in a hundred other ways, but they place a very young, beautiful girl somehow that her, he's got to suck her soul out of her mouth for us to understand 
that there's some relevance to his character. Mm. And that's why when it came back at the end, I, I just thought, like, why? I, this sounds terrible. Why is she in this film? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I don't understand that at all. And even the, the beginning, we sh- I, I don't know if there's more to say other than it may not have, like, shouldn't have been in the film, but other than maybe to show that he is n- in no way a good person, Juan. But when he takes the, the woman who has been chastising him in this sort of puritanical way, that whole scene was very gro- gross and I, mm-hmm. I, uh, unsettling. And and then dropped and like ignored for sure. the rest of the film. So so we're okay. So we're completing two things here. But because you brought it up, I, I Sarah, what? How do you look at that scene? Like how we're introduced to Juan and, and that sexual violence that we're shown at the very beginning of the movie. So this might be a different reading. When we are introduced to Juan, he is. Playing a character, um, like a, a poor farmer, please, here's some money, take me to the next city, let me ride in with these rich folks. And um, he doesn't really speak, he is very like quiet and puts his head down. And the rich folks are very rude to him, and these rich folks are white, uh, a few of them are Americans, there's one that's um, a priest, uh, I don't know whether mm-hmm. Protestant or Catholic, but probably like Catholic. Catholic. <laughs> And they are speaking about Juan um, and all of, you know, Mexican citizens as animals, brutal, they don't know anything, they're idiots, which I think is why there's like the close-ups of the people's mouths because they're like devouring food and then talking about um, these other people as being animals. Uh, So I think that's Leone trying to draw that, draw a line there. The woman in particular uh, is very focused on the way that she perceives Mexicans as being incestuous. At night, they all lay in a pile and you never know who's going to be next. Wife, daughter, goat. That's kind of what she says. And it's very, like, gross the way that she imagines Mexicans at night. When... Juan and his kids overtake the carriage um, and he draws her out. He brings up um, what she said and he takes her into a shed where these goats are and is a little, okay, (laughs) I don't really know how to talk about this, but usually in a scene where there's going to be sexual violence, there'll be an emphasis on the brutality of it, of a power relationship, something like that. And in the in 1971, without HEWAC around, people are just going gung-ho with that kind of depiction and will throughout the rest of the 70s and 80s. What strikes me in this scene is it is gentle and a little compassionate is too strong of a word, but going towards that way because Juan first shows off his penis and has like a little bit of a joke of like good stuff eh and it's very like calm and gentle as he goes towards her as if to imply he's not going to be brutal and the way that she reacts to his approach and um his body feels very like oh but she wants it and i know that that's a very that's not problematic. It's very problematic, absolutely, and is a 
kind of rhetoric that we hear even now that is used to dismiss victims. But in 1971, uh, with the sexual politics of the time, that might have been Sergio Leone's intent of showing like, no, she's actually kind of into it. And the fact that Juan is being so gentle as opposed to her fantasies or her imagined way of how Mexicans will mm-hmm. engage in sexual activity is showing his the way that he is not a like a stereotypical Mexican. He is very actively pushing against that idea. Part of this reading is because there's another guy on the in the carriage who's like, you don't even know who your father is. You don't know how many kids you have, whatever. And he's one of the first people to be brought out. And Juan introduces him to his kids. This is my father. I know exactly where all my kids are. Um, and just kind of pushing against what these people are thinking of him. So that's my reading of the of the intent of that scene. I definitely think it's intentionally set up for him to challenge the stereotypes, not just of Mexicans, but you know, yeah, the elite class and how we care we we still characterize how do people live in this part of the world, in this slum, in this economic uh, space, in this culture, and it is interesting and exciting for that table to turn so quickly because we're not aware that the whole thing is going to be a heist either. You know, we we see him starting off peeing on ants and barefoot and we're mm-hmm. questioning why the movie's opening up with this uh with this man and as he enters the carriage and they go into it's almost not a, I mean I shouldn't say horror movie to both of you who like horror movies but there's something horrific about him entering into this small cabin and these people are like, you know, chewing and spitting and throwing racial slurs and just being horrifying monsters. And then when the twist happens, it's exciting because you're like, yeah, fuck these people. You know, (laughs) look at all these people. They're going to suffer. And then he comes out and instead of just killing them wantonly, he gives them the uh, moral education about how they are wrong in all their views. And you have to expect him to kill them, but he humiliates them. Um, My problem is just simply like you brought up, maybe the sexual politics have changed so much, but it, Kyle and I have been noticing, as you brought up, 71 is a strange year with any, any gender or sexuality politics in principle, because everybody's just trying to push the envelope everywhere. It is striking to me that this is the only female character, other than the flashback, that it is emphasized so clearly that this had to happen. I mean, it's not like everybody partakes, like it's not his family, it's just him. Like there's a lot of weird nuances that I thought maybe there's a better way a more succinct way to challenge the stereotype of sexual in- infidelity and all of this sort of Catholic idealism about lust in a way that didn't have to be so visually pornographic, really. Yeah, it's it's weird. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to describe that opening sequence. I think it all works towards us getting a, f- a flavor of one, if we want to put it that way, since everybody was sucking on something in that scene. But... Um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it was just weird to me. And yeah, I'm glad I mean, that it was over. And I think, I think what I picked it. up on too was how restrained of a scene that was compared to other films we have already watched this year even. Yeah. Of like, oh, they could have gone way more brutal if they had sure. really chosen to in this movie. Uh, just to finish off on the flashback side of it, I, I think it is very intentionally like this is like the most idyllic portrayal of ireland like he had such great memories back there he's clean shaven he's not so bedraggled as what he's shown in the rest of the movie with yeah that whole relationship is just so fascinating to me and this is why it makes me say to maybe rewatch this movie at some point in the future just to be like okay let's break this down like 
like how does this interact with like the other relationships that he has in this movie because it does feel like throughout it he starts this movie as like i am completely maybe not nihilistic but definitely pessimistic about everything and then he's a little at least a little bit hopeful by the end there's that friendship that him and juan have actually eventually come to by the end of it and i think it's because he is kind of starting to remember back those times when you know he actually had friends and he wasn't just like this loner wandering (laughs) mexico Mm -hmm. and kind of to dave's point about like well why is this irish girlfriend even here like what purpose does she serve that's the train of thought that got me thinking like is this queer coding like, is she mm. just supposed to be a way to have Sean and John kissing without actually depicting that? Or maybe she's just supposed to be the, like, symbol of Irish freedom, and they're both, like, in love with the idea of that. I don't know. Right. Just because you brought up, I just wonder, if that were the case, would it not have been in public settings instead of hiding in the woods mm. and in a car all by themselves? Uh, which is, I mean, I don't know. We did see some like uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and we've seen some other films, uh, Death in Venice, but we won't get into that, where they're trying to challenge this problem. But it is, yeah. I mean, I, I'll I'll think about it. I, yeah. I still think it's weird, <laughs> for sure. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is, I, I'm pretty sure it's one who says this, where he says, "My country is my family," and mm-hmm. I thought that that was such an interesting line to bring up here because all these revolutions are generally fought because we're upholding our cultural. Uh, country values like that's kind of what a lot of revolutions are fought for but him is like oh. i don't care i don't care about this revolution that's going on i care about my family that's all i care about you are grimacing dave so you must have something no, I, to say i just i i worry about how history reflects back on revolutions and how it confuses the rhetoric used to incense the masses sure. with the actual uh intention of the the folks that are starting a story. I, I think that's I, maybe what I was trying to verbalize and did a bad job of. Yes, I agree that oftentimes revolutions are fought because of, I don't know, the way that the state is trying to construct a narrative. But I think at the end of the day, like people really it's like, I just, I just want to be with my family. I care about these people that are closest to me. And I don't care about these other big heady ideals necessarily. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I When you read about any fascist state or any, actually not even fascist, any state of war where people commit atrocities against other human beings, it is not always and generally not often the extremists that commit the worst crimes. Mm. Uh, frankly, it's a lot of people that would identify as being in the middle of a political political uh, spectrum that are now uh, emboldened and allowed to release what sadly I am beginning to suspect is intrinsic part of human nature, which is to commit violence and to be self-centered and to take advantage of power schemes, whether it's on the political side or on a personal one-to-one basis. I mean, we could talk again about the invention of uh, ethics, morality, and religion as a response to this, you know, why communism doesn't work outside of certain number of people, how there's coding, like even this of us being civil to each other on a Zoom call. These are not necessarily pieces of human nature. This is how humans have learned to survive in civilizations. So we paint a picture of like, oh, well, it's about family and it's about national identity. I don't know if I believe that anymore. This is too pessimistic even for me. There's just too much stuff. If there's there's at least five people on a Zoom call, it actually always devolves into revolution. That is (laughs) actually a fact. Well, we learned, what's the limit on a panel discussion, Mm. Kyle? It's like five members. And after that, 
it's it's almost a fight because nobody yeah. gets time to talk. Everybody feels tense. Imagine doing that with uh, what's in the American state right now? Three hundred fifty million people, especially right now, where everybody believes that they've got it right, and we see that it's called Twitter. It's fucking well, yeah, awful. Yeah, that's the other yeah. quote that I like from this movie, where they say, "If it's a revolution, it's confusion." Mm-hmm. All right, I'm makes- conscious of time. Last thing I just wanted to mention: we've briefly called out Morricone's uh, score to this. This has a lot more synthesizer than I remember him using before. Maybe I'm just wrong in that. But like, like, I, had to, I had to look it up and be like, Giorgio Moroder, the guy who made Moog synthesizers, was around at this time and like starting to develop that. So I was like, was he being influenced by this? Anyways, there's a lot of synthesizer in this score that I noticed. I just wrote that I thought it had a lot of Burt Baccarat in it. It's very loungy, you know? <laughs> I, uh... Sure. Well, you might have noticed he, they intentionally, instead of doing like the wah, wah, wah thing from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, they had them do a different word. Well, that's why I think that uh irish friend's name is sean because that theme of sean 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 only comes up when john is feeling like thinking about ireland and everything so that that's my theory as to why his name is sean though apparently in the script the guy's name was nolan it's never said so i'm just gonna call him sean yeah just make up your own name because all of it is correct it's never said on screen so who cares exactly (laughs) we're done here so the machine has told us that we do need to wrap this up so i think first and foremost we should try and answer that question we always try and ask here does this hold up and do you still think it is culturally relevant uh sarah what do you have to say about that absolutely especially in a time where we have people pushing up against classism all you have to do is look at the way that there is wealth inequality in the united states specifically with jeff bezos going up in a penis rocket uh and people starving yeah, on we the saw him actually but he, it was like, for blew family. Past our window yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this movie is very relevant the fact that like leone still doesn't come down on like it's good or bad it's just a thing it kind of ties into that uh mouse the tongue quote at the beginning of like a revolution is an act of violence and Mm. it's really about like what you do to in response to that violence is what you would be doing in a revolution i Mm. absolutely think it's still relevant how about you dave no i agree the idea of uh and depiction of revolution in general will likely always be relevant because there are always power schematics and we always need to understand that we don't need to necessarily be obedient all the time although some Complicity is nice so that we don't have to keep punching each other in the face every time we meet, Kyle. It is kind of a, you know, like all films in 71. I just always imagine like if if my son is tw- 12, I don't know, maybe 12. If I put this in front of him, I'd like to think that people still respect Leone's way of approaching yeah, film. But also this so... movie is not made for a 12-year-old, Dave. So I don't <laughs> right, know if 13, that's a great... Sorry, I 13. mean, I was probably 12 when I first saw it. Let's be real. Sure. That's the thing. I just, Helen just told me that there's a... A girl, she now lives in Toronto, but she was uh, in Mensa at two years old. She was reading. She wrote a book. She's seven. So, right. you know, Cal, I mean, get with the times. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I also agree with you, sir, in that, you know, for example, mentioning Jeff Bezos, I just learned the Burj Khalifa has no sewage system. And so all the poo gets shipped out in trucks every day. I mean, the idea of what wealth is has become a joke. So watching a movie like this where we see the wealthy, you know, humiliated, it's always going to spark interest. I think it's interesting. So I think I'm yes and yes, too. It it is still interesting to me that this movie, I don't think, has the same 
cachet as say like a good the bad the ugly or once upon a time in the west it, it seems to be one of his forgotten movies but i think there's a lot here that can be resonant it's just, to a modern it's just audience. uneven right like the like when he thinks of the bank heist and they do the overlay i, I mean love they, it's it. just got a I know, but it's like there's campy cartoon and then it disappears. Like it's just a little uneven in its tone, but it's fun. <laughs> well, glowing review from Dave. Yeah, glowing review from Dave. <laughs> well, that's pretty good for me. Let's go to Critics' yeah. Choice. Like, yeah, let's go to Critics' <laughs> Choice. For some reason, I don't know why this is like a recurring thing over the last few weeks, but neither Pauline Kale or Roger Ebert talked about this movie it's at all. because they're like us, Kyle. They're tired of Westerns, man. Maybe. So oh. these are much more modern day reviews. Some One from the early 2000s, one from a few years ago. Anyways, Vincent Canby of the New York Times was uh, negative on this movie and says, the idiosyncrasies are there, all right, but they have never seemed less interesting. That was his uh, summation. Ah, succinct. <laughs> Uh, and Andrew Harris from The Observer says, the combination of Leone's obsessive close-ups, Ennio Morricone's melodious music, and the camaraderie, so the camaraderie chemistry of Coburn and Steiger ignite an emotional explosion comparable to that of Once Upon a Time in the West. Do you think we could become professional critics? So you, you only need one sentence. I think we could do it. We don't <laughs> well, that was part of a larger review, but yes. I am very interested to know what you would rate this, Dave, but that is what Dave sarah and myself thought and so what do you think you can send any feedback to kyle and dave vs the machine at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter or instagram with the handle kdvstm if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given you can go to our letterboxd page that's letterboxd.com kdvstm and another huge shout out, you can go to our uh, YouTube channel too if you want to watch uh, video versions of some of these reviews. If you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free though is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. Well, let's get to the rating for this movie. Uh, I always feel bad for our guests here, but uh, Sarah, your no, rating doesn't. doesn't really matter. <laughs> However, if you were to be asked out of five what you would rate this movie, what would you rate this movie? 4.5. 4.5. Oh, wow. Nice, nice. Ooh. Dave, what uh, the heat? I, sh I should just say that is also what I'm giving this movie. So, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's we're, the we're right there. Four and, four, yeah. point, four and wow. a half. That is so high. Yeah, I loved it. It was great. Wow. No, it's, it's not a four and a half for me. I don't know. Well, like, what, where am I averaging right now in, in the year? Like a two? Your average is 2.04. Cur oh, I went over a two. Fuck, I've been yeah. pretty lenient this last couple of weeks. Um, Lean into that. Come on, Dave. <laughs> Join I, us, Dave. I, I, my minimum is a three. I think, you know, what's interesting about these conversations is that you both bring in more insight, which is important to my initial viewing. So, uh, yeah, I think a three and a half is good for me. I yep. have a nostalgia for Leone, but I don't know. I like his other movies better, frankly. I mean, what are you going to sure. give Man with No Name? Like a six? No. I mean, <laughs> I don't. I, I to be honest, I've not rewatched The Good, The Bad, and Ugly in probably like fifteen years. But I do remember really liking better. that movie a lot. So yeah, I just maybe, watched that, it. Maybe that would be five. Like two knows? months ago. Okay, well, Dave, that actually does not tie with anything. That is going to go straight into the number three position on Ooh. our list. So nice. well, what's our top three? Top three, Ducky Sucker, Fiddler on the Roof, and Harold and Maude. Those are our oh. top three currently. All right. Yeah, I'm okay with that. Well, I guess it's time to see what we're going to be watching next week. I'm going to push this button here. Well, Dave, your prayers have been answered. We're out of Westerns. Oh. I think the last five weeks we've been talking about Westerns. It's too dusty. We are going to go 
over to Britain. We're going to watch a gritty uh, crime. More white people. We're going to be watching the original Get Carter next week. Oh, fascinating. Some more Michael Mm -hmm. Caine. Yeah. Michael Caine. (laughs) (laughs) Test out your impression. Yeah. He's going to be young. And uh, the Stallone movie is fucking terrible. So let's uh, let's do this. Let's find out uh, where it came yeah. from. I may I may or may or may not have already watched the movie and the remake that Stallone made. And you are correct. <laughs> the Stallone movie is awful. Sarah, is there anything that you would fight a revolution for? We're fighting a revolution right now, Kyle. Ooh, come on! It's true. It's true. Um, Several. Dave, put away your red hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, revolutions are terrifying and violent and i think there's no way to do a peaceful revolution uh so it would take a lot for me to participate in one but i think that it's possible to make change perhaps more slowly but it's possible to make change without going into a full sergio leone revolution so i prefer to make that that earlier change i just hope that there's an epic soundtrack that's all i want There's no such thing as an original idea.